good morning. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, again, we would ask you to be our teacher. It's a, it's a blessing, Lord, to gather with others and to sing words that remind us that you are a good, good God. Some of us this morning are in places where uh, maybe we feel distant from you or maybe circumstances are such that that's a hard thing to even sing. You're a good, good God. And Father, we need reminding of that just because of what life can do to us. It's also amazing, God, that we could sing that uh, we are loved, that that's who we are. Wow, that's, that's because of your faithfulness, because of what you've done for us in Jesus. So help us as we once again, Lord, take up this subject of deadly misconceptions. Guide us as we think together and study together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, last week I said that uh, one of the most important uh, things, or at least our most important ideas, are the ideas that determine uh, our meaning, our purpose, our peace, our joy, even whether or not we persevere in trial, uh, are our ideas about God. They are our most important Ideas. If somebody really created all of this, if this is not just some accident that we participate in, if we really do have a maker, then knowing him, his nature, his character is critical for having and living a good life. Uh, there's a columnist named uh, Irma Bombeck, who I didn't realize it, but she's actually deceased now. But uh, she tells the story about being at, at church one time and there was a little kid sitting in front of her they were sitting in pews, and this little boy was kind of disrupting the service just a bit. He was obviously bored. He wasn't screaming or crying out or anything like that, but he was turning around in the pew and looking at the people behind. And if that's ever happened to you, you know how distracting that can be when a little child is looking at you, grinning at you, that kind of a thing, right? Well, his mother didn't like him doing that. So she kind of said very sternly and gruffly, you know, stop that. Stop grinning. You're in church. And then she jerked him around and kind of gave him a whack and made tears come to his eyes. Irma Bombeck says that she wanted to grab this little boy and with the tears on his cheeks and, and tell him about her God, the happy God, she said, the smiling God, the God who obviously has a sense of humor. After all, look at us, right? Look at who he's created. Uh, so who's right? Is the mother? Is Irma? Which one did God approve of in that moment? Um, was he happy that the little boy got a little whacking? You know, is God a whacking kind of God? Some say yes, some say no. What's the impact on the human race of believing in a stern, whacking kind of God? Is it positive? Does it lead to fruitfulness, flourishing? Is it negative? Uh, there's another quote I want to share with you. This is a uh, uh, by a woman named Emma Goldman. And uh, Emma Goldman lived at the turn of the century, early 1900s. I think she maybe died around 1940, something like that. And this is what's ironic is that this is probably the only thing that ever gets quoted by her anymore. But she was a, an anarchist, a very uh, involved political uh, activist and a writer. And she wrote these words way back then. She said, Christianity is the leveler of the human race the breaker of man's will to dare and to do, an iron net, a straitjacket, which does not let him expand or grow. 
Wow, a lot of people have that kind of concern about Christianity, you know? You believe in Jesus, you start following him. It's like having a straight jacket put upon you. Put on your beliefs, put on your behaviors. It's repressive. Christianity is repressive, is the contention. Uh, another writer, H.L. Mencken, also early 1900s, uh, American journalist, kind of a satirist. He was also a scholar of American English, and he wrote these words. You've actually heard these words before. Uh, probably didn't know they came from him, but he wrote these words. He said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. You know, a lot of people characterize Christianity that way. So the question, does being a Christian mean that I'm just a, I'm a rule-following, box-checking, robotic, unthinking, judgmental, inflexible, severe, self-righteous, pleasure-avoiding sheep? Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Kind of like what would happen if you, you know, if a repressed librarian married a neurotic accountant, that kind of a thing. <laughs> Does following Jesus take away our freedom? Does following Jesus take away our initiative, our enterprise, our critical thinking? Does Christianity have actually a negative leveling effect, almost opiotic, you know, an opium kind of a, an effect on people? We're going to look at the Bible again today, and uh, I hope we're going to see that uh, that is not the opinion of the writers of the Bible. Uh, these writers have a view of God that is so different than seeing him as a, a God who puts us in a straitjacket or a God who is judgmental or a God who is legalistic in character. Uh, I hope we can see, in fact, that maybe, maybe the presentation of God, even in the early chapters of the Bible, this might shock you. If you're a person who's sat in a pew or a chair in a church your whole life long, you might not like what we do this morning, and I, I apologize ahead of time. It's not my fault. Um, well, I guess it kind of is my fault, actually, but anyway. Um, Jewish rabbis would talk about how when the Bible begins, early chapters, God has some surprising instructions for the human race. He makes human beings, we're told, of course, in his own image, which we'll come back to that idea in a moment. But, and then we read this, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, he says. And the rabbis would note that these are the first words God spoke to human beings. This is God's first command to the human race. So they ought to be treated, therefore, with some type of special reverence, and they should be understood as having a special importance. Now, notice what God doesn't say. God's first instructions to human beings isn't, you know, don't sin, uh, because they hadn't yet, but, you know, he could have warned them. He doesn't say, read the Bible a lot. I know you don't know what the Bible is, but it's coming, and when you get it, I want you to read it all the time. He doesn't say, make sure you believe the right stuff as opposed to the wrong stuff. What he says is, be fruitful and multiply. Now, if human beings are going to multiply, what activity is it that is probably going to have to take place? Apparently, this is why Presbyterianism is a dying denomination. You're not really sure. Um, you know, it's not that a mommy Presbyterian and a daddy Presbyterian who love each other very much read John Calvin together, and the next thing you know, there's a baby Presbyterian. That's not how it works. It's this thing called sex. Um, I know. Uh, I'm a professional. You know, been married for 40 years. The first commandment really is for a husband and wife to have sex. But notice that doesn't quite capture it all because God doesn't just say be fruitful and multiply. He says be fruitful and multiply, and he says fill the earth. 
If you know anything about the earth, it's 24,000 miles around the circumference. We now have over 7 billion people on the planet and counting. So to go from two people to 7 billion, how much sex is that gonna take? <laughs> a lot, right? A lot of sex. Not just that. In order to make sure that this commandment is fulfilled, God makes sex actually an extremely desirable and delightful activity to ensure that this commandment gets fulfilled. So understand, that's the first commandment. Have sex. Have a lot of sex. Have a lot of great sex. Are you still with me so far? Okay. Now the rabbi said, uh, you know, that's in the Bible. It's the first thing God says. Therefore, it's very, very important for the human race to listen to this. Who knew? But that's the first thing God said. Now, second commandment. Number two, we read this. And the Lord God commanded the man and said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Underline that. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, most people fixate on just the last part of that commandment. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I hope you notice that the initial command here is you are free to eat from any tree you want to eat from in the garden. There's only one exception. In Hebrew, actually, there's a double emphasis here, a double command. It's like eat, eat. It's almost like God is, you know, being an Italian mother who sees her son and doesn't matter what her son weighs. It's like, you needed some more food, you know, eat, eat, eat is the idea. Not only does God want them to eat, but the quality of what he, what he gives them to eat is quite frankly astounding. We're told in Genesis 2.9, it says, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees. He didn't have to do that. Uh, out of his goodness, he creates kind of a variety pack for them to eat. All kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So before the fall, apparently human beings uh, were vegetarians, but the idea of this is it is going to be a great feast, even though it's vegetarian. If you're a vegetarian, I mean no offense. I'm just speaking for myself here. But all, all kinds of seed-bearing trees, they're yours to eat from, he says. So it's almost as if he says, you know, feast, feast, stuff yourself, enjoy the good things I've made for you to enjoy. You can eat from every tree in the garden but one. That's the second command. Eat up, enjoy, stuff your face. And he doesn't stop there. There's one other command that is given before the fall. God says to man and to woman, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, exercise dominion. Take charge over everything. Play a role in the development and the, the unfolding of culture as you oversee everything I've created. God is saying, I want you to do great stuff. I want you to make things and invent things and study things and discover things and organize things. I want you to build cities. I want you to plan architecture. I want you to create art and make beautiful music and train dolphins and ride elephants and collect butterflies and make machines that move fast and create language and write stories and myths and romances and make airplanes that take over the sky, design technology you'll love. So do great stuff, have a lot of great sex and eat a lot of great food. Those are the three first commandments and God doesn't stop there. It actually says in Genesis 1:28, and God blessed them. And that's very significant. God loves to bless. 
excuse me, the rabbis talked a lot about this. You see, to bless means to project good into the life of another human being. That's what a blessing is. And God loves doing that. God was always blessing things and people. There's a connection here between God's blessing and God's commandment in Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. But the connection is not what most people would think it is. God is not saying, I'll bless you. I'll give you stuff. I'll do things for you, but I expect you to do some stuff for me. That's not the connection. The connection is that God blesses them, and then God commands them to do certain things, and as they do those things, the things that God commands, they experience the blessing of God along the way. Now, the rabbis and, of course, the people of God who knew God, the people of Israel, they recognized that there were some flaws in this whole thing, uh, namely the fact that we are fallen. Human beings, of course, as you know from the fall, became morally broken uh, creatures. Uh, in fact, we're, we're pretty blind sometimes to what is right and what is not. Uh, we don't know how to live the good life, the blessed life. We need some help, some guidance instructing us. And uh, they believe that, of course, God was the one who would give us that guidance. Uh, God is gracious. God will help us. And that's how they perceived the law, the commandments of God. The point is, God's heart for human beings is for us to flourish, you see, to live lives of joyful productivity, to live lives full of meaning. And they believe this so deeply, they would say things like, my soul is consumed with longing for, now stop right there, fill in the blank. You see, what would you expect to fill in that? That's a, that's a statement of longing and a statement of passion. How do you think that gets filled in? Well, here's how it gets filled in. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. That's kind of surprising. Really? Seriously? Longing for the law of God? I thought the law of God was a straight jacket, you see. Not according to these people. Interestingly, we see this quite a lot in the Bible. The first Psalm, it kind of famously says, the person who is on the right tack, who is flourishing, delights in the law of the Lord. Um, the psalmist also says later in the Psalm, Psalm 119, says, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Panting is actually a picture of what a, a dog might do. It pants for water, it pants for food. Uh, it pants for attention sometimes. Dogs, if they pant long enough, they'll start to slobber and salivate. They just, they want the good stuff. They want what they're waiting for, you see. And that's the picture that the psalmist paints here. Yeah, I can't wait for the good stuff. Give me another command, God. Guide me, show me what the good life looks like. Let me walk on a path of, that's lighted by your word. And it's not, of course, because the psalmist is some repressed or legalistic, box-checking, rule-following, joy-killing automaton, but because he is convinced that there is a wonderfully, wonderfully good, good God. And if you just look around this world we live in, you see that, that God is unbelievably creative, unbelievably imaginative, unbelievably, unbelievably provisional. Look at how he provides for human beings. Seven billion of them or more. This planet is capable of providing. There's an abundance that God provides. Even though the world isn't the way it's supposed to be, it's still a wonderful thing and a wonderful place to, to behold. Even though this world is messed up, actually this God who creates such good stuff wants us to live good lives full of meaning. 
He doesn't want us to waste our lives or get addicted or enslaved or do stupid things or hurt each other. The psalmist was somebody who loved God, loved life, wanted people to to flourish, wanted the planet to flourish. He was convinced that all of God's commands are actually given to bless us. Not to restrict us, but to bless us. Now, this is terribly important. All of God's commands, every one, are given not because God is legalistic, not because God is on some kind of power trip, not because he's a a killjoy, but precisely because God wants to bless human life. And so the question is, where did the idea come from that God is severe? Where does the idea come from that God is legalistic, that he's picky, that he's repressive, that he's greedy, that he's a joy killer? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you look at Genesis 3, we find out right away. It says, now the serpent, aha, there we go. Now the serpent, you see, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, of course, that's not at all what God said. God didn't say you must not eat from any tree. God said you can eat from every tree except one. So what's going on here? You see, Satan calls into question God's intention. He suggests to Eve and to Adam that God is holding back. God is hiding something. God is not letting them experience the, great, the greatness, the, the good, the joy uh, of, of what they could possibly experience. God's being stingy with you. He's repressive. He's a killjoy. And something trips internally in both Eve and in Adam. They buy the lie and uh, they decide they're not going to stand for this. They make the decision that God can't be trusted. He's not as good as they perhaps thought he was. He's holding back. Eve says then, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say to the servant, you know what? God actually commanded us to eat from all of the trees in the garden except one. She doesn't say that. Uh, What she's really saying is, yeah, you know, we have permission to eat, but not from all the trees or we'll die. Eve starts to question God's goodness, God's provision, God's protection. And she even adds that other little tidbit uh, that they must not touch the tree. What's what's going on there? What is that about? Because God doesn't say that. Well, I'm guessing here. I hope it's accurate, but I, I'm wondering if, if it's, if, if, you know, if I'm going to disobey God, if I'm not going to do the right thing, uh, the thing I know that I ought to do, I've got to find a way in my heart, in my mind to depict what God is asking of me uh, as being too severe or, or maybe too silly, the opposite extreme. It's not reasonable what God is asking so I can justify my own disobeying of it. Eve is actually saying, well, yeah, you know, God said we're, we're not even allowed to touch it. That's what she's saying here. And of course, the, the attending thought would be, and, and that's kind of silly. I don't know why he would say that. I don't know why he would do that. You know, some people, when they read the story too, they wonder, well, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden 
at all? Didn't he know that that was going to make them want to disobey? Why didn't he just let them eat from every tree? And the straight up answer on this is that this actually is a trial. Uh, this is uh, an instance, uh, uh, an event, a, a tree that God put in place strictly for the purpose of testing trust, testing authority, testing love. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a, it's a test, of course, that Adam and Eve failed and frankly, that all human beings have been failing ever since. Uh, the fact is, I don't want to have a moral authority outside of me. Not really. I don't want an authority that can command me or an authority that can hold me accountable for what I do or don't do. The fact is, I want to decide. I want to decide for myself what's right, what's wrong, what I'm going to do or not do. I want to be my own God, and I certainly want to make my own rules. And sure, you go ahead. You decide for yourself what you want to do. I won't judge you. You don't judge me but I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And interestingly enough, that's not a new idea, is it? That's not an idea that died out 3,000 years ago. That's a very contemporary idea. Everybody has to decide for themselves what's right or wrong. But here's the thing. There's a big, big, big problem with this. I appreciate what Tim Keller writes about it, Dr. Tim Keller. You know, he has uh, oftentimes, uh, he used to, uh, they would have church service and afterwards they would have a time of question and answer and interaction and a lot of times skeptics would come to these uh, people who were really questioning Christianity, weren't sure what they believed about uh, Jesus and things like that. And they would have discussions there. And uh, Tim Geller actually writes about some of those discussions. He says one of the most frequent statements uh, that he would hear in those contexts were, was this. Every person has to define right and wrong for him or herself. And he says, I always responded to that speaker who would say such a thing by saying, is there anyone in the world right now doing things you believe they should stop doing no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior? It's a loaded question. And then he, he notes, he said, people abuse, they're violent, they, there are wars, there's robbery. And so these people that he would ask this question to would invariably say, yes, of course, there's things I would want them to stop. And then I would ask, he says, doesn't that mean that you believe there is some kind of moral reality that is there, that is not defined by us personally, that must be abided by regardless of what a person feels or thinks? And almost always, he says, the response to that question is silence, either a thoughtful or a grumpy one. Yeah. You see, what the Bible is saying, too, is that there is a right and there is a wrong that's just built into the fabric, the fiber of the way things are. I don't get to make that up any more than I get to make up the law of gravity. The law of gravity is just there. And I can't actually break it without breaking myself or hurting myself. The Bible says there's right and there's wrong. There's good, there's evil. And it's built into the cosmos itself. I didn't put it there. You didn't put it there. We can discover it. We can reflect on it. We can think about it. We can learn about it. We can obey it, or we can try to violate it to our own detriment, our own harm. But we don't get to make it up. In the Bible, we see people expressing a a love for the word of God, the law of God, because they knew that if we rightly understand it, and try to live it with the help that God gives, it's going to actually show us what the good life looks like. And that's what they thought. 
And uh, if they are right, well, that leads to a couple of really important questions. Here's one. What about the weird laws of the Bible? Have you run across any of those as you read the Bible, the weird laws of the Bible? Anybody here ever been reading the Bible and you come across something, you scratch your head and you go, what is that? Here's one. Uh, this comes from the uh, book of Deuteronomy and uh, it says in Deuteronomy 22, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Some of you are thinking, thank God. This is one commandment I have kept. I, I have uh, you know, I've broken all the others, but I, this one I got. Yeah, you feel better about yourself. Here's another law, Deuteronomy 22, also verse 11. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Why in the world would God give a rip about whether I'm wearing a wool blend or not? Why? Why would that bother him? What, what are these commands doing in the Bible? They're just silly. Now, again, we talked about this last week. You're going to hear a common theme here. There is a cultural context to the scriptures, right? The Bible wasn't written in a cultural vacuum. Part of what's going on in the ancient, this ancient Mesopotamian culture is that people would practice what anthropologists today call sympathetic magic. You may have heard of this before. The idea is that if I engage in certain symbolic activities here on earth, I will trigger action in the heavens, in the spiritual realm that will help me get what I want. There was a kind of marriage idea here, that if I bring two breeds of animals together and in some sense marry them or two seeds of different plants or two different kinds of fibers, they were causing a marriage in the heavenly realm of sorts and out of marriage comes what? Comes fertility. Things get produced out of marriage and that's one way for me to try to manipulate things and get what I want. Well, God is saying to his people, God is saying to Israel, uh, we will not have that in our relationship. Um, this is not how things are going to function. Uh, understand the Israelites would have also understood all of this immediately. This was not an enigma. This was not a mystery to them. God is saying, as we relate together, this is not how we relate. Our relationship's not about superstition. It's not you trying to manipulate me to get something that you think you need. Now, here's what's interesting. You know, we, we, can, we can kind of grin at previous cultures and think, oh, they're just, they're just so naive. And, but this kind of thing still happens today. There was a very popular book written not too many years ago, and it was called The Law of Attraction. It was a New York Times bestseller. People love this book. And what that book argued was that if you thought about money, in just the right way, money would be attracted to you. You would, you would get the money that you're looking for. Made the same argument about success. If you think about success in just the right way with just the right formula and you practice this, you will then result in experiencing success in the realm where you want it. The point was you can tap into spiritual power without having to think about the one true living God who is concerned for things like justice and compassion. And he's concerned with reforming our characters and creating goodness and righteousness in you. You can bypass all of that and just get what you want if you have the right formulas, if you practice the laws of attraction. God says, no, I don't want that. That's not how we're going to relate. Don't do that. We're not playing with magic here. 
And so he uses examples that would be really, really clear, would have been really, really clear to the Israelites living in that ancient Mesopotamian culture. But you got to dig a little bit to know that, right? Uh, it would be something like in our day, if you, uh, if you were really struggling with sexual self-control issues, right? And you were to receive a command that said, don't buy an edition of Sports Illustrated in February. Does anybody know here what that would be about? No guys are raising it. Guys don't know. They're all looking down going, no, I have no idea. I don't know what that's about. Only the pastor does. Um, in February, of course, is the swimsuit, the notorious swimsuit Sports Illustrated Edition. And if you really want to try to devote yourself to the pursuit of chastity or of sexuality that honors God or fidelity to your spouse, probably not going to help you to have that issue of Sports Illustrated around. So that command could be quite helpful. But imagine 2,000 years from now, okay, when there's no longer any such thing as Sports Illustrated, let alone magazines, they're probably not going to be around. And if you just saw the command, thou shalt not buy Sports Illustrated in February, you would think, that is so random. What is that? That is weird. Why is that in the Bible? What is that about? Now, we all understand it immediately. Um, but people 2,000 years from now, they're, they're not going to get it, not without some digging. Um, and here, here's an aside suggestion I would make to you. When you read the Bible, regardless of what you believe about it, whether you believe it's the inspired, inerrant word of God or not, uh, but when you read the Bible, you must assume that any piece of literature that has been around affecting culture for 3,000 years was probably written by somebody who was at least as intelligent as you are. That would be a good assumption, a helpful assumption. In other words, they didn't write this stuff down and go, wow, that is weird. I have no idea what that's about. That's not how the scriptures were written. They knew. They understood. What they wrote was not weird to them. Interestingly enough, too, in that world, there actually, there actually is something that was very weird, unexpected, culturally uh, revolutionary uh, in the scriptures that Israel received from God. Uh, namely, that every human being is made in the image of God. It was an egalitarianism that was revolutionary in that ancient Mesopotamian culture. And uh, this idea that every human being, male, female, rich, poor, your tribe or another tribe, is to be treated with worth and dignity because they too are made in the image of God, revolutionary. Incredibly weird in that day. There's a fascinating book. Uh, I, can't, I haven't read the book. I read an article about the book. Um, the book is uh, published by Oxford University Press. It's a rabbi, Joshua Berman. And I've heard his name's come up before. I've read his name as he's being quoted by others. But uh, his thesis is this, that the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, uh, that they articulate a new social, political, and religious order, the first, in fact, to be founded on egalitarian ideals. That's the premise of his book. And he points out that the notion of egalitarianism, that every human being is of equal worth, equal value, that was not a part of the mindset of ancient Mesopotamia. You know, ancient Mesopotamia was a tribal society. 
So egalitarianism is an idea that first, uh, you understand, came through this little nation, this little country of Israel, that God created everybody in his image. Shocking, amazing, astounding is the claim. This idea, um, Joshua Berman says, was a radical departure from all other ancient political thought. So no wonder the psalmist and other writers of scripture and readers of scripture would read scripture and just think, wow, God, I, I, I love your law. There isn't anything else like it. Now this leads to another question, one we touched on last week. What about some of the laws that we run across in scripture that are very, very harsh? Last week, we looked at Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Ouch. Wow. No timeouts. You know, no second chance, third chance, fourth chance. We read passages like this, and they seem severe. They seem almost vengeful to us. But go back 3,000 years, cultural context again. In the ancient world, uh, they had no police departments to speak of. They had no judicial systems. Uh, they don't have defense attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, elaborate law enforcement structures. In that world, if you were rich and you were powerful, you get away with whatever you want to do. If you were poor, you get the shaft, that's what you get. See, if I'm rich and you're poor and you break my tooth, if I want to kill you, that's exactly what I will do. And nobody will question me about it. See, uh, this, this law, Exodus 21, is actually a demand for change in that kind of thinking. It's putting restrictions on what can or cannot be done. It's saying that even if you are rich and powerful, if somebody knocks out your tooth, you can't kill them. There are limits to what you can do. And even if you are poor, if somebody who is powerful hurts you, you have rights too. And this was actually an enormous step forward in this whole thing of justice being done uh, in human society. And it's a really interesting thing. You know, we are tempted to think uh, about the law of God as if it's a straitjacket. That's a pretty popular notion in our culture today. You know, the, the law of God binds us. It keeps us from doing what we want to do. But the strangest thing happens, actually. Anytime somebody lives their life for doing just whatever it is they want to do, whatever they want to do ends up usually, oftentimes, enslaving them. Have you noticed that? The Bible puts it like this. Peter writes and says, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Have you ever seen anybody mastered by their work? Ever seen anybody mastered by their studies or mastered by a relationship or mastered by their children or mastered by things like alcohol or lust or money or success, you name it. Those are straight jackets. You know, the word of God can be used cultically and appropriately, it can be a straight jacket, wrongly understood, wrongly applied, just like so many other straight jackets, the alcohol, the lust, the money, success thing. You know, we start out thinking, I just want to be free. I just want to be able to do whatever it is I want to do. And before long, we find out I'm no longer free to not do it. It owns me. 
And, um, you know, friends, the truth is God wants you and me to be free. He doesn't want us to live in bondage like that. And that's the backdrop idea of the law of God. He's guiding us. He's teaching us. He's preparing us to live the good life. And sin corrupts that so badly that we, we even use good things that bring about bad results because we become addicted to them. We raise them up, good things, and we make them our ultimate thing. And when that happens, we be, live in bondage to them. But God doesn't want us to live in bondage. God wants us to be free. And, um, and yet so much of human life and human experience is lived in bondage to various kinds of things. When we break God's law, that even in and of itself becomes a bondage from which we struggle and can't really deliver ourselves. Uh, bondage to sin. But here's what's interesting. As we live in bondage, as we pursue other things than God to give us the good life, we actually create a debt, a debt that we owe to God, a debt that we cannot pay. Uh, when we deserve to be punished for the wrong things that we've done, what we discover in that exact context is that there is a good, good father, a good, good God who loves us so much that he did the one thing that had to be done to deliver us from bondage. He actually sent his son from up there to down here. And Jesus comes and he lives a life and he dies a death that's all about purchasing us our freedom and giving us his righteousness. It's all about us not having to carry around this debt anymore that, that holds us into bondage. We understand that our debt is why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus' blood was shed for us. That's how much this God that we're talking about, that's how much he desires our freedom. That's how much he desires to bless us. That's how much he desires to give us the good life. He desires it so much that he does the most costly thing imaginable in sending his son from up there to down here to die for us and to give us life. When it comes to my sins, my sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. We come to a meal that is uh, for us that, you know, it's, it's so very interesting. <laughs> and I've, I've mentioned this before that, you know, we don't have a... Um, an object that we're supposed to wear that's a sacrament. We, we don't have uh, a certain text that we're supposed to memorize and say together that's a sacrament. What we have is a meal that's a sacrament. It's so much about hospitality, a meal that Jesus hosts. Uh, it's a meal that Jesus serves. It's a meal that reminds us that he's paid our debt and set us free from bondage. It's a meal that celebrates his goodness and his grace and, and is a constant reminder to, of that, to us that what he wants from us and with us is relationship. He is a good, good God. Jesus in the upper room took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he passed the bread to his disciples. They took it, they, they partook of it. And in so doing, uh, the first time they partook of this, this meal that became a sacrament, they had no idea what they were doing. Um, 
It was an enigma, really. But they did understand that they were there with Jesus. And then after his death, after his resurrection, of course, this meal takes on its true significance to them. As it does for us, we recognize that the the blood of Jesus was shed for us. Jesus in the upper room took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he gave them the cup and they drank. And so it, it is such a privilege that Jesus calls us to this table and he says, come feast on my body broken for you and come partake of the blood that I have shed for you because I want you to be free. I don't want you to live in bondage. I don't want something to be a straight jacket in your life. I want you to know what the good life is all about. And we discover the good life in Jesus. Now, Jesus invites all of us to come to this table, but there is a prerequisite. It's very important that you have faith in Jesus. It's very important that as we come to this table, we confess our sins. We know that Jesus is the payment for our sins. It's very, very important that we rightly partake of this meal by faith. And so if you're in a place of inquiring and wondering and asking questions about Jesus, about Christianity, I would just encourage you to stay in your seat. Don't, uh, don't partake of a meal that you don't yet understand or embrace by faith. But if you are a follower of Jesus, boy, we invite you to come be fed, fed on his body and on his blood. Receive the spiritual nourishment that only his body and his blood can give you. I'm going to ask those who are going to serve us to come forward as I pray. And uh, there'll be stations up here. uh, And you'll get up out of your seat. You'll move to your left. And you'll come forward and tear off a piece of bread. And then you will uh, either dip it in the goblet with a little bracelet on the stem, which is wine. Or you can dip it in the goblet, which is juice, which does not have the bracelet. And uh, you'll make your way then back to your seat. And uh, parents, also for your children, if you've got children here, just know where they are. If you're going to have them partake, it's important that they have faith and that they understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Pray with me. Father God, we give thanks for this holy sacrament, this thing which communicates the grace of what you've done for us, Jesus, to us. We thank you for your hospitality paid for at the price of your life, Jesus. We thank you for the way it frees us. We thank you for the grace and mercy embodied in this meal. We thank you, Father, for the fact that it feeds us and it nourishes us and it beckons us to deeper and deeper places of faith. May we honor you as we come to this table, God, and we do so confessing our sins, acknowledging our need of you, but also receiving and enjoying the forgiveness that you provide. And all of this, all of this, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.